Well, I'm excited about this particular uh, group of messages. I've been anticipating it for a long time. Now, if you've been with us over the past, um, well, two months or so, you know in preparation for Easter, we have been walking this road called the death of pride. And uh, it has been really challenging for me to see that God is indeed doing that, trying to humble my pride. Um, And we focused on Jesus, the cross, the humility of Jesus, um, the fact that we need to lift others up above ourselves and treat them as more important than ourselves and so forth. And now we are in a place with Easter behind us to look forward to another great redemptive event that is a major apocalyptic event that the prophets looked for, and that is the celebration of Pentecost. That is that time in which God for centuries had prophesied in which he would pour out the living water of his spirit on his people. Now, unfortunately, sadly enough, most contemporary churches don't give a lot of press to Pentecost. That is when God gave his spirit. It's kind of like this dwarf brother of Easter. So it's kind of forgotten and left out. But in the minds of the prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament, both Easter and Pentecost were both huge, spectacular, life-altering, world-altering, history-altering redemptive events. That is to say, Moses looked forward to the day in which God's Spirit would be poured out. Isaiah prophesied a day would come in which God's Spirit would be poured out. Ezekiel prophesied a day is coming when God's Spirit will be poured out. Um, Let's see, Zechariah prophesied a day in which God's Spirit would pour out. Joel prophesied a day in which God's Spirit would be poured out. An amazing time. In fact, God through the prophet Isaiah would say this, and I love the image. He said through the prophet some 700 years before Jesus was ever born, he said, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. And he interprets that in the next phrase in Isaiah 44, 3, when he says, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. It's it's the water of God's presence that he said, I will pour out on you. And 50 days after Easter, 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead, that event was fulfilled. That great anticipated event, forethought and forecasted by the prophets for centuries, took place 50 days after in what we call Pentecost, Pentecost meaning 50. You can read about it in Acts chapter 2. It's, it's an amazing chapter, and actually the whole book is amazing to see how powerful it is after God's Spirit has been out. So naturally, we're headed towards Pentecost, which is coming up here in a couple of weeks. And so we are going to be looking at the topic of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of living God. And let me just say that my aim in, in teaching on the Spirit is not simply to inform your mind, but to transform your soul. That is, my hope is that in teaching the Scripture, and this is true of any teaching, is that we're not simply informing the mind. Now, that's necessary, but I'm hoping that we are experiencing, in this case with the Spirit, that we're experiencing, searching, seeking, exploring the Spirit in such a way that we experience a profound deepening of our faith and dependence and the experience of all that God has for us in the Spirit of the living God who's right here, right now. That is, it actually alters my life, your life, and the life of this church. That's that's my hope. But with that being said... 
I might have a problem with my earpiece. Holy Spirit, help me with this. <laughs> with that being said, let me just say a word about a fear that I sense in a lot of people when it comes to the Holy Spirit. That is, I think there is this latent fear when you talk about, hey, let's explore the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit. There's this kind of latent, unspoken, holy, uh, uh, unspoken fear that, that if we start talking about the Spirit and delve into the Spirit, that's, we're going to slip down this slippery slope and people are going to start frothing at the mouth. Then they're going to start laughing or crying or yelling in the spirit or, or they're going to somehow go into fits of ecstasy and, and, and fall on the ground and, and people will start speaking different with different kinds of enunciation, if you know what I'm saying, all of which we have seen distortions of kind of on the, on the fringe of the Pentecostal movement. And I just want to say that, that, you know what? We shouldn't allow our fear of, of abuse to keep us from experiencing and exploring all that God has for us in the Spirit. I don't want to. I mean, if out of fear we're drinking out of the well of God's Spirit with a spoon, I'd rather, if I don't have to, drink from the river. I, that's where I'd like it to be. So I'd like to encourage us to set aside our fear of the Holy Spirit. And let's let the Spirit be our guide. I mean, after all, the Spirit wrote this. I realize He used men to write it, but all through and through, it's the Spirit that wrote this. So let's let Him tell us about Himself. And if we stick to this, then I think we'll be okay and we'll avoid distortion and extreme. So having said that, I want to encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 8. We're just going to look at four verses. We're actually, in the next three weeks, we're going to look at the first half of this chapter. And then we're going to bounce over to 1 Corinthians. But this is where we're starting in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Again, if you have your Bibles with you, I highly recommend, encourage, exhort you to bring them, open them, look at them, bring a pencil, write, make notations um, so that you can remember some of this stuff and take it home and look at it and ponder it and hopefully change as a result of it. Now, this is an interesting text and I think a fitting one because in verses 1 through 4, Um, we find Paul bridging together the two great events of Easter and Pentecost, the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit. And that's kind of the two pieces of this particular text and this particular message, the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit. Paul opens up with these amazing, great words. He says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is a phrase that, well, concludes and picks up all of the other themes that have been unfolding in this amazing book called Romans, this this letter to the Romans. That is in the statement, therefore, there is now no condemnation in Christ. It picks up the, the themes of of chapters 1 through 3, which basically tells us there's no one that seeks after God, therefore everybody's condemned. It picks up the, the, the theme of justification and hope in chapters, latter chapter 3, 4, and 5. picks up again the theme of the fact that believers have now had the power of sin broken in their lives in chapters 6 and 7. And here in chapter 8, kind of like a snowball that picks up speed and also mass in eight, it all comes out as he picks up all these themes and they all explode in this chapter that some have called the Everest chapter in all of scripture, chapter eight of Romans, a chapter that is about the spirit of 
God. That is the statement he makes, the concluding statement he makes, um, a thesis, so to speak, when it says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Verse 2 goes on to give the reason why we are not condemned any longer before the Lord. He says, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. What I simply want to point out in verse 2 is the reason we are not condemned in verse 1, we are no longer stand condemned before God, is because of Christ and the Spirit. That's the connection. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, that should be capitalized in your Bible, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin. Here of Christ and Spirit, side by side, bringing together our salvation in a way that if Easter was all we had, our salvation would be incomplete. The Spirit is included by necessity in our salvation. Now, I've included this up here just because I want you to understand kind of the logic of how this passage works. You have this basic thesis, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a statement of where we're at as believers, all who believe Christ. Verse 2 tells us the how, and he bridges Christ Jesus and the law of the Spirit, those two things. Now, what I'm going to argue here is that verse 3 in red explains the Christ part of it, the work of Christ, and verse 4 explains the law of the Spirit part of it. That is, you have in verse 3 the work of Christ so that we're not condemned, and in verse 4 we have the work of the Spirit so that we are therefore not condemned. First part, because through Christ Jesus is explained in verse 3. What Jesus has done so that we're no longer condemned. You can read it for yourself. It says, For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in sinful man. Paul starts off by telling us that the law, what the law was powerless to do, and when Paul talks about the law here, and he's been talking about the law all through the book, He's talking about Mosaic Law. He's talking about the Ten Commandments and the other commandments that would be connected to him. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. Thou shalt not covet. Who hasn't committed that one? Thou shalt not covet. He says what the law, the law of Moses, was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. That is the problem. really wasn't with the law. It was with us because we couldn't keep it. What the law couldn't do because we couldn't do it, God did. Now that's, you understand again, Paul's picture of God is that we can't do it. So God flies in on his, with his cape and with his power, and he does it for us. That's the gospel. God did. God's the hero in the gospel. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man. Notice he says likeness of sinful man. He's careful pr- to protect the fact that Jesus was sinless. He was perfect. But he came and was subjected to a world in which sin existed, and the power of sin existed. And what God did is he made him to be a sin offering. That is Old Testament language or imagery of of a goat being slaughtered or a lamb being slaughtered. That is God sent his son to be that slaughtered sacrifice. And so he, that is God, condemned sin in sinful man. That is, to put it shortly, the work of Christ is summed up in this passage in this, in that God condemned our sin in Christ. And that's... New news to most, uh, not new news to, to most of you. The reason 
that we can say with joy, verse 1, which is, there is now no condemnation for me, is because of verse 3, that condemnation fell on Him. You see, so condemnation did need to fall, but it fell on the Son. God sent the Son to take that for us. He was the fall guy. Again, we just went through Easter. We've hit this, this point time and time again, so I won't belabor it here. But just to pause and remember how amazing it is that we can actually say, and it's true, that there is now, presently, right now, in this minute, I don't know, 6.45, no condemnation right now because he was condemned in our place. I know that's an intellectualist statement, but you know when, when people struggle with guilt, and that's something that a lot of people in church struggle with, ongoing guilt, failing to do things, and I struggle with it too, fail to do something or you you do something you shouldn't do or you're examining your motives and you're wondering am I is that really am I doing it out of proper motives it's very easy in life in the Christian life to kind of submerge yourself below the waves of guilt and the world becomes a joyless sad place because you see yourself as guilty but to stop and to grab hold of this single Amazing truth that therefore there is now for me no condemnation. God doesn't see me as guilty, so why should I? It's like one of those verses that you have to kind of sink deep into your heart and each morning you have to remind yourself, therefore there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus for me right now. It's, it's gone. That to me is like a ray of sunshine that dispels the darkness of, of guilt and reestablishes my joy in the Lord and makes me want to sing, bless the Lord, oh my soul, bless the Lord. You stand here, sit here tonight without condemnation if you trust in Christ. So I'm not saying you don't take ownership or responsibility for your sin or if you confess it, but in the end, God no longer sees you as guilty. So stop stinking, sinking between the stinking waves and... Uh, and live in the light of the fact that you are no longer condemned before God. He's not mad at you any longer. So that's the work of Christ. Now I want to back up to verse 2 and let's look at the work of the Spirit. We've looked at Easter. That's the glory of Easter. The work of Christ. God condemned our sin in Him. We're not condemned because He was condemned. And let's talk about the work of the Spirit. That's the part where it says, because through Christ Jesus, through His being condemned, the law of the Spirit set me free from the law of sin and death. That is, before the Spirit could come, atonement needed to be made. And it couldn't be by a blood or a goat. It had to be a by man. Life for life, man for man. So when atonement was made, then the Spirit could be given. And the Spirit was given. And the Spirit is, ironically enough, spoken of here as a law. It is the law of the Spirit of life. And I didn't actually include that in there. The law of the spirit of life is what it actually says in your Bible. Um, It is this inward principle of the life and the presence of God within that now is the new way that the person of God lives. Contrasted to, and I should say, back up and say that this law of the spirit that he has given to us through the cross 
It sets us free. It says it set me free from the law of sin and death. That is, it sets us free, not only from the penalty of condemnation, but also, I think, and I'm going to argue here, is the power, it's enslaving power in the Christian's life. It has set us free from its power as well as its penalty. Now you'll notice in verse 2 that it's contrasted, the law of the Spirit set me free from the law of sin and of death. There's two contrasting laws. There's the law of the Spirit that produces life in us, eternal life in us, and then there is the law of sin and death. It produces sin and it produces death. Now I believe that law of sin and death is the same law as verse 3, what the law was powerless to do, namely the Ten Commandments and the other commandments combined. Old Testament law. Paul is calling it a law of sin and death because that's all it produces. It makes us aware of how screwed up we are, how messed up we are, that we're rule breakers. It does nothing but condemn. That's what it does because if you don't keep the law, you stand condemned. Just like in our society, you don't keep it, you stand condemned. Not only does it reveal sin, not only does it condemn sin, but the law ultimately increases sin. Paul is crystal clear back in Romans 5, just two chapters, three chapters earlier, 5 verse 20. Paul tells us that the law was added by God at a certain time, time of Moses. The law was added to increase trespasses. So God gave gave us rules and regulations back in Exodus to increase our sinfulness. It incites and stirs up the sinful desire within. I see that. True, of course, in, in the analogy, I, the, the, the living example I have in kids, and of course my own life too, but my, uh, my youngest, three and four months now, if I'm sitting on the couch, and this has happened before many times, and I'm sitting on my computer, and I tell my little son Isaac, Isaac, no touchy daddy's computer. In your experience of children... What does that command incite them to do? What does the command, Thou shalt not touch thy father's computer, incite them to do? Well, he, my son gets like this. He looks at me and he has this impish grin. And then he starts his finger and about two hours later, it touches the computer. I have just said, Thou shalt not touch telling me that the command incited him to do it. Now you might say, yeah, that's how all kids are. No, that's human nature. Someone says to me in a kind of a, 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 an authoritative, condescending, or I would take it in a condescending way that doesn't um, massage my ego with please, says, go get me a cup of coffee. You're thinking to yourself, oh, oh no, you didn't just tell me what to do. And your first inclination is to do exactly the opposite. I am, get your own darn coffee. That's what you're thinking. That's how you're feeling. Well, God added the law, all of the commandments and so forth, to actually incite us and to show us that we want to do. We grade against law. We grade against commandments. And we want to run the other way. And and 3,000 years of biblical history, the entire Old Testament is a living monumental history book about how people couldn't keep it. They were incited against it. 
So judges and kings, the whole Old Testament is a dark spiral down of people who had this precious law but couldn't keep it. So it ends in the, in the, with the prophet Malachi very dark because people can't keep it. And that's not to say, by the way, that the law is bad. It's not because Paul in the earlier chapter says it's good and it's righteous. The Ten Commandments are wonderful. The problem is not with the Ten Commandments. The problem is with us. That's why he says, says verse 3, for what the law was powerless to do, it had no power because it was weakened by what's in me. That gravitational pull towards evil that indwells every human heart. That's why we can't keep it. And there is, I think, a massive application. Let's get practical here for a second. This theology. A massive a massive application for us. If simple knowledge of the moral law of God is not enough to empower one to live the law of God, then it means that simple knowledge, knowing, does not equate to doing or to enablement to do. That is, as I said, the Old Testament is a living example of the fact that simply knowing that I shouldn't commit murder, knowing I shouldn't covet, knowing I shouldn't lie, knowing it is not equated with enablement. In fact, quite to the opposite, we don't have the moral volition to do it. The moral will, it's rather, rather humbling thing to realize we can't keep the law of God in a way that pleases God. But I wonder how many of us, I wonder how many of us operate on the assumption, and I think many do, that if you know something, then you can do it. How many people have gone to a marriage seminar, and I've had close, close family members whose marriage has been on the rocks, and so in an effort or an effort to, to, to rectify things, they sign up for a, an expensive marriage conference or they, they get marital counseling, both of which are wonderful things. But oftentimes going with the assumption that if I go and get the right information, then I'm going to come back and everything's going to be different. Then I watch the couple who leaves, goes and gets the information, they come back, and they don't have the power to do the information. And so their marriage continues on a rocky course because they unknowingly believe that knowing equals empowerment. And it doesn't. How many people do you know that, that um, overspend? They spend more than they make. And they know. They want to be better stewards of their money and of their, of their finances. And so, you know, they want to be able to save and to be able to be generous with others. So they go get a financial advice, sound financial advice. And a, an advisor gives them a blueprint. It looks at all of their finances and kind of gives them some strategies for this is how you can get back on top so that you're actually being financially honoring to the Lord. And they get all this great information, they go home, and nothing changes. Again, oftentimes the operating assumption is if I know how to do something, or what I should do, I can therefore do it. That knowledge equals empowerment, and it does not. People do that with the scripture as well. People make the mistake of thinking that knowing the Bible equates to being able to do the Bible. So you spend... Lots of hours, and I'm a big fan of knowing the Bible, obviously, and teaching from it. But that 
Knowing all the facts, I know all 12 names of 12 tribes of Israel. And I know all the 12 names of the 12 apostles. I can name all the books backward, forward, from A to Z. Zechariah and Zephaniah. I know all that. And you operate on the assumption that if you understand it all, therefore I am going to live it. Eh. Bankrupt by yourself. All that does by itself is condemn you. And you don't have the power to live it. We are volitionally challenged. We cannot do it. Simply knowing does not equate to empowerment. And it's not until we get that, until I get that, until I realize and you realize that simply knowing something does not grant me the power to do it because I do not have it in me Period. It's not until you grasp that from heart level that you'll see your drastic and massive need for the Spirit of God to do what you cannot do. That's why we have here the work of Christ, which is Him taking our condemnation for us, side by side with the work of the Spirit, which is comes in a new law. It's not external. It's not written with pen and ink on parchment and paper. It's now written into the fabric of our hearts. It's the presence and the power of the living God on the inside now bringing a new volition, new will, new desire, new empowerment to actually live it out. The law of the Spirit. It's a new way to live. So if you think that Christianity is simply living by rules and regulations, you've got the heart of it all wrong. Because God sent the Son to take care of the bad stuff, and He sent the Spirit to change your life. This is, by the way, intensely Trinitarian. God, the Father, sends His Son, God the Son, and on the basis of the death of the Son, the Spirit, God the Spirit comes, the three, Father, Son, Spirit, in one, in a cooperative effort to save you and me. That's pretty cool, I think. But that's precisely the good news of the gospel. God just doesn't wipe away sin. He gives us power to live. The law of the Spirit that not only takes away the penalty, but empowers us to live and setting us free. And again, as I said, I believe it's explained further in verse 4, where it says, in order that, and I've got to back up and show you the logic of this again. It says, And so he condemned sin and sinful men. That's the substitution of Jesus for you and me. He did that in order that or so that the purpose of the crucifixion in this passage is so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. Now there are at least two interpretations of this verse. And personally, I love the NIV but it makes hash out of verse 4. No other translation translates like the NIV, so I have to supply a little extra translation. If you have ESV, that's English Standard Version, or another translation, you'll know what I'm saying because it translates it in totally different. One option is to say that when the first part of verse 4, in order that the righteous requirements, NIV has an S there, of the law might be fully met in us, some interpret this as, let me use a theological word, justification. That's the best picture I can give you is basically the big switcheroo. That is, Jesus was perfect. God takes his perfection of Jesus and lays it over you. So now he sees Christ on you. And he took the negative bad stuff from us and he placed it on Christ. 
so that Christ died for our sins and we get his righteousness. It's not about how we live life. It's about what Christ has, God has given us in Christ and placing sin on Christ. That's, some think that's, that's what this means. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. In other words, Christ lived it out and he gave it to us. I don't believe that's the right interpretation. There's another interpretation that sees this as the living out of a righteous life empowered by the Spirit. That is, if I was to put this in my own paraphrase, the cross happened so that we who were in Christ by the power of God's Spirit could actually live out the righteous requirement of the law. That is a changed life. I realize most people don't care where I got that interpretation, but for those who do, let me tell you why I think that's the right interpretation. The last statement of verse 4 says, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Which, if you take the first part of verse 4, which is that transference, justification of all God, Christ's righteousness on us, it doesn't make sense because the last part is speaking of people who are already living according to the Spirit. As God justifies sinners... Not people walking in the Spirit. It, it, it just it doesn't make sense. The second reason is you'll notice in the NRS, all the other translations, that word righteous, requirement, in NIV it's plural. In the Greek it's singular. King James it's singular. New King James is singular. Even the living translation gets it as singular. That is, it's one requirement. And if I was to expect this to be talking about Christ's righteousness placed on us, I'd expect it to say, in order that the righteous requirements, plural, of the law might be fulfilled in us. All of them might be fulfilled. And the last one has to do with the word translated fully met in us. No other translation translates it that way. It's always the word fulfilled. It's fulfilled, fulfilled, fulfilled. Paul uses the same word a few chapters later in Romans to talk about the one command that is the sum of all other commands. You remember what that is? Romans 13. The one who loves his neighbor has kept the whole law. Single requirements. Same word. In other words, I think what's in view here is that Christ sacrificed himself for us so that by living in the Spirit, we might actually fulfill, same word as Romans 13, the righteous requirement, singular, namely to love God and love the neighbor as ourself, a single command, and in so doing, to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. So you see, verse 4 has really nothing to do with, again, big word, justification, but it's the sanctification. It's actually the outworking and the living of life. So God, in verse 3, through Christ, takes away condemnation. In verse 4, He gives us the ability to actually learn and grow in love and therefore in loving others to fulfill the one command that sums up all other, the one requirement, namely to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor. Now that too, and I'm going to end with this application, because that's we've seen the work of Christ. He was condemned 
so that we could, we could say verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But then he also graciously at Pentecost gave us the Spirit. And anybody who trusts in Christ, the Spirit has been given. He has given us the enablement, the power, not from us. That's to live by the sinful nature. But the Spirit, the presence of God in us to actually live different, to move on and progress in holiness and righteousness of life. And it seems to me, and let me just be straight and blunt here, that in light of the fact that we can, in our generation, not really tell the difference between a believer and an unbeliever, because they look a lot the same, they act the same, they're doing the same kinds of unrighteous things, it seems to me one of two things has happened. Either there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians who don't have the Spirit and therefore are not truly saved because the Spirit desires to grow and be righteous and to love people. It's possible in a church of our size, about 500 when people gather, that there are a lot of people who think they're Christian but have never experienced the Spirit because there's no outworking of righteousness happening in their lives. Or, maybe we've misunderstood or just drank from the teaspoon because we're afraid of Him. But we really don't believe that God has given us, by faith, the power to actually move forward in life to break free from the enslavements of spending too much or being addicted to pornography or eating too much or a host of all, a a bunch of other vain pursuits. It's not to say that we're in any way, shape, or form going to be perfect before we get to heaven. But I think this verse tells us and teaches us that God expects and has empowered us with a new volition, a a new law within to actually make quantifiable progress in loving people in the variegated ways that love shows itself. It is in compassion or care, sometimes in rebuke, sometimes in confrontation. Love isn't always happy and gushy. That's why the Spirit teaches us to love. Sometimes it's waiting. Sometimes it's in speaking. Sometimes it's in serving. Sometimes it's not in serving. That the Spirit of God will in us if we trust Him and if we truly have Him, we will see quantifiable qualifiable progress in life towards loving people. Most of us are okay with the first half. I like the fact that Jesus died for my sin. But the second part of it tells me by the Spirit of God, I have been empowered and expected to change. The purpose in this passage of Christ dying for me was that I would be changed. Life would be changed. And that's precisely what I hope and pray the series of messages will do in me and in you as well. It's not to simply know. we got to know first, but, but to experience a deepening of our faith and dependence on the Spirit that we might actually see that quantifiable growth in life and affections and love. That we would really learn how to do what I'm trying to do day by day, moment by moment, is actually depend on Him. The Spirit of the living God. So, You know, to know that I can, I'm weak, Lord, Spirit, give me strength. I'm anxious about the future because I don't know how much longer my job is going to hold out. Spirit, give me peace. I'm struggling with sin, Lord. 
Spirit, give me strength and power to overcome it. That I'm experiencing pain in a relationship. Spirit, give me strength and understanding and love to forgive it. I have lost my joy. Spirit, I will depend upon you and pray to you and ask you, please let your joy be made full in my life. To live each moment in the power of God's Spirit that He has given us. In this passage, the purpose of the cross is the Spirit might change us and dwell us. The power of God. If we want to move from pathetic Christianity, and not everybody's in that category, powerful Christianity, then we must hear what God says when He says, it's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Perhaps that's something that you need desperately. I know I do. I know we as a church do. We want to spread a passion for the supremacy of Jesus. And we want to deepen a passion for the supremacy of Jesus. It's going to be right here in the spirit of the living God. Now, I have asked a lady that I deeply respect, who I think, I'm going to embarrass her by saying this, but is light years ahead of me in knowing what it is to be spirit-led, driven, and empowered. Her name is Susie Geistock. And I would like, I've asked her if she would come and just lead us in a prayer. A prayer of celebrating that God has given the Spirit, but also a petition that God would deepen our faith and dependence upon the Spirit. And so that we might, in the weeks ahead, really, again, not just know it, but have it change us in our lives. So Susie, could you come up and just, you do whatever you need to do. Be led by the Spirit and um, guide us and direct us. Thank you. I just have to share with you really quick because um, I feel like a small little unit here, but I daydream a lot. And I was daydreaming about one day before the Lord takes me home that all of us will be here and experience an outpouring of the Spirit. I probably won't share this tomorrow morning because we're just a small little unit here, but I just have this dream that all of us will come out of our seat and we'll physically be here on our knees before the cross and just experiencing revival together. So I hope you would daydream about that too because that's really exciting to me, especially as you're entering in the series on the Spirit. But um, I love the posture of bended knee because I know that in God's economy, the way up is down. So um, would you be willing to just kneel? If you can, if you are physically able. And... uh, We'll worship the Lord and pray together. Father, we worship you and we praise you and we thank you for who you are. You are mighty God. And you are our strength and our shield and our strong tower and our deliverer and your mighty fortress. And you are a very present help in trouble. We thank you for the cross. We are so grateful for the cross. You knew perfectly well what we needed. You have made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin so that we might be made the righteousness 
you for the forgiveness of our sins. And thank you that we will never, ever, ever have to be separated from your love. Thank you that because of the cross we have been reconciled to you and we have been given the Holy Spirit to dwell in us and to lead us and to guide us and to empower us to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the conflict. Oh, Father, we long to live in the Spirit's presence and power and to fully experience the fullness of your Spirit in everyday reality. But it is our confession, Lord, that we are really weak. And more often than we'd like, our flesh rears its ugly head and, and we succumb to the lies and we succumb to the accusations. And then we, we end up just left to our own misery and our own brokenness. But yet I know that your word says that a broken and contrite spirit, oh God, that is what you will not despise. power is lacking in our lives. And ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us where our flesh is standing in the way of what you want to do in us. Maybe it's even a situation or relationship where there's just this efficiently on flesh power. Just as we've learned a minute ago, we have been crucified with Christ. And we are not under any condemnation. So let's choose tonight to bend the knee to the crucifying work of the Holy Spirit in us. And quit resuscitating us afresh. Oh, Father, as we kneel before you, we declare to you
resources of heaven and all the power of the Spirit is made available to us. It is at our disposal. So unless heaven's riches can be exhausted and your Spirit's power can be found wanting, I know, Lord, that you never, never come up short. And we ask, Father, as this new series begins, that the truth of Christ's death will always be the most precious treasure in our lives. So in your 